All right, everybody. Hey, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. And one of my favorite guests and one of our top episodes ever was with Greg McEwen, who wrote Essentialism. And Greg, welcome back to the podcast. It's so great to be back with you. And, you know, I tell this story all the time because I thought it was so cool of who you are as a person. I read your book. I was in the middle of focusing on, you know, building a business from scratch. I'd had an accident. I'd been in the hospital for two years and I was just building a coaching practice, doing executive coaching. I only could work part time and my time was literally, I could work eight to 10 hours a week. My time was absolutely at a premium and your book came out. I read the book was absolutely transformational for me. I was telling Greg beforehand, I said, seriously, like I'm like, uh, you know, essentialism fanboy. And that's actually not too far from the truth. I'm just being honest here. But I reached out to Greg, I actually found your website and shot you a note. And I said, Hey, I just started a podcast. It's not a big one. But would you be willing to come on and have a conversation? I honestly didn't know if I'd hear back from you. But within two hours, Greg, you reached back out. And we had an amazing conversation. I've forwarded that podcast to, I don't even know how many people. It's had thousands and thousands and thousands of people listen. It's also, I just want to let people know out there, all the leadership training that we do with Fortune 100 companies, with the Air Force, with the Army, essentialism is on our reading list that we give to all of our clients that we work with. So, Greg, thank you again for not only your body of work and your life and what you do, but also for just making the time to be here with us today. Well, thank you. And I want to go a little further on that story with you now, because I, you bring it back to my recollection now. So you were down to eight to 10 hours a week. A week. And then I'm trying to remember now, you had a coach, I think. I did, that yes. recommended it to you. Yeah, my coach said, hey, you need to go read this book. This is going to really help you. And then just reading the tagline. Help, help you what? Do what? Well, the thing was, okay, so I had all these different ideas, like what I should be doing with my time, right? What is the best use of my time? My wife was helping me build the business. I had an assistant, like there was no role clarity. I was busy kind of doing a little bit of everything from building my own landing pages, trying to write copy to create programs, to marketing, to new clients, to working with my coach to get better at creating results for the clients that I was then working with. and running accounts receivable or accounts payable, bookkeeping, which was horrible. That was a whole disaster. That is not my strong suit. So I've now outsourced that to some very competent people. <laughs> but I was trying to do all of that. And what I realized was, you know what, what is the one thing, if I could boil it down, that would be essential for me to focus my time on? And I love something you said before that this whole word that we have in our vernacular, which is really a new word, is priorities. Because yeah. in the past, there was no such thing as priorities. It was a plural. It was a priority, a one, a singular, right? It was what was the essential thing. And I'd never thought about things from that framework. And everybody listening, Greg and I were just talking, right? There's been so much content around what's going on in the world right now, coronavirus and the changes in business. And I think Greg, you and I both agree that honestly, a lot of business, even though we're going through adversity and every one of us has been through the ebbs and flows of business before, and yes, this might feel unprecedented, but if we focus on things that are really based in timeless principles, we're going to move through anything that we encounter because when you do move through adversity, 
you don't stay status quo. You either get stronger and you get better because you focus on the things that are important, either your own skills, how you think, your mindset, your business processes, or you go backwards and you get weaker. And I think this is a time for us as leaders to maybe, one thing that it does is maybe reawaken maybe a desire or an awareness that actually there's things that we need to make the important things important again. Well, so much to riff on there, but I was just put in touch with a fellow called uh, Ben Berrigan, I think that's his name, who trains like the fittest people in the United Kingdom. He like trains the people that win the CrossFit championships, the world champions in this. So he's like really intense, interesting fellow. And the reason I was connected with him is because I'm launching a podcast, uh, Essentialism Podcast. And and, uh, so we're trying to talk to all these people. And as I was being introduced to him, I looked up some videos of him Something he said, which I loved, is he said, when people ask me to define failure, it doesn't compute. I don't Mm. know what they mean by that. He said, you either succeed or learn, and there's nothing else. He doesn't even know what it means. I love that insight. And that's not just a, I don't find that overly optimistic point. You learn or you succeed in what you're trying to do. And I just think that that's a really good thing to hold on to right now as people are going through this ambiguous and uncertain time is like we either achieve the things we're wanting to or because the circumstances have changed, we're going to have to learn and learn fast. But those are our options. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know that whole concept of failure, I think it comes from when we compare ourselves to others, and that is one of the, the biggest performance killers of us individually or even a family, a team, working with my kids and sports. And what we have to learn to do, and this is what your friend does naturally, this is how he thinks, is I want to always compete with the best version of myself. And what does it take for me to be there? And if you can look at the outcome of anything that you do, regardless of the results, right? Let's say you didn't like the results, but if you can just focus, I think on two things, and that's a pick one thing out of there that you actually did well. I mean, give yourself some credit because guess what? Nothing was horrible. Although I have had some things where it's hard to find that one thing, but you can find it. And then the other thing, a friend of mine who's a performance coach and he works with elite athletes like LeBron James and Roy McIlroy and guys like that. This is his approach with them. And he won't sit and meet with them Greg, unless they've actually written down 10 things that they have learned and observed about themselves, their training habits, even when things didn't, you know, I, he hits a shot and it hooks into the grass, right? Take the time and what did I learn? Okay, where was my weight? Was there anything that I observed in myself? We can do the same thing with interactions with people, with businesses, with a prospect, but that totally shifts us away from competing, which is not a good place to be. And this puts me in mind, I was having a, spent an hour talking with Bob Bowman, who is coach to Michael Phelps, mm. and the coach through all of it, right, from when Phelps was first discovered all the way through the Olympics, the multiple Olympics, it's always been him that's been there. And he told me in detail the story of the 2008 Olympics. So you'll remember this, this is in Beijing. And remember, it was in the Olympics that was in, they were in the cube, sort of blue cube where they did all the swimming, do you remember? Yeah, I sure do. And I've been there now, I've been to that, to the cube and sat there and there was, you know, tried to sort of imagine what it was all. So Bob says, 
first of all, yes, we had this singular focus, right? So they did have a priority focus. And the focus was, okay, how can we win eight gold medals? And there's no way, of course, you don't win eight gold medals unless you're really highly focused. I mean, that's, that sort of goes to that saying. But then... He said it was like that miracle movie. Have you seen the miracle movie where the U.S. team? Yeah, the 1980 Olympic hockey team. One of my favorite movies. You know. And yeah. there's a moment in that where the coach, after they won mm. against the Russians, so it's a semifinal, right? But in effect, it's the final because it's, you know, impossible to beat this team. and no chance the Americans are going to do it. Well, after they do, he goes into the, remember he goes into the hallway? Yeah, in the back, alone, behind, away from everybody. And in that moment, he's saying what, I mean, I, he's not saying anything, but he's, it's like, oh my goodness, this just happened. You know, I've had to try to pour belief into my players through this whole time. You know, we can do this today, we can do it. But then after the fact, he's got to face having been successful. And the coach Bowman is telling me the story. He said, I had exactly the same moment. I literally, after Phelps had won the eighth gold medal. It, immediately afterwards, mm -hmm. I went into this little corridor and I stood there and just tried to take a deep breath. Like, it just happened. <laughs> and not only had it just happened, he said it had happened effortlessly. I mean, basically, effortlessly. Like, there was no, like, crazy anything. It just flowed. This is what they prepared all those years for. And I'd studied previously the preparation process that they'd gone through and the coaching process and it, they followed this incredibly clear routine and I write about that in essentialism. But what was fascinating about talking to Coach Bowman after the fact was the post-success period. He said they literally left within like, I can't remember what he said, but I think within a couple of hours of him completing that race, getting that eight gold medal, they leave. So that's it, right? They finished all the races. They're never going back there to do that. That is done. They leave. There's 10,000 people waiting for them outside. 10,000 people. They immediately went from there to go and to, I don't remember, ABC or one of the network. They were sat down and had to do a recording about the whole experience because they knew, you know, their contracts were such that they, they, these networks knew if they don't give the details now, we'll never get them. Uh, so they had to go and do that. And he just described back to back this furor over Michael Phelps and him too, because he's there part of it. He said after X amount of time of that, I don't think it's, it's a few days, weeks of him for him, he gets on a plane, he gets to come back to the US. And he said it, everything just stopped. It was just silent in comparison. For Michael, he said it went on for a bit longer, but eventually the same thing happened for both of them, which is that they came down from this meteoric high from the success. And what followed was inevitable, like trough of, I don't know, disillusionment or despair or whatever, but just completely different. And I just think it makes for an interesting conversation as we think about coaching other high performing people and helping them to perform at a high level, not just how to help them be successful, right? That's level one, but what to do once they are and how we can prepare them for success. Because success definitely comes with its own set of predictable problems. And yes, it might be nice to have problems maybe, but they're still problems. 
Yeah. So, you know, talking with Bob, and I know you've done a lot of research into this whole area, what did you learn and, you know, your takeaways in that conversation? Well, to use um, Tennessee Williams phrase from a New York Times article that he wrote, uh, you know, it's like the catastrophe of success. <laughs> I mean, he writes this after he wrote the, the Glass Menagerie. He said everybody he spoke to wanted to talk to him about the Glass Menagerie. Everybody wanted to, it was this, you know, award-winning show and everybody loved it. He said it was like their compliments just couldn't even hear them anymore. It just was so unsatisfying and he's living in this hotel hotels all over the place and he just said he got further and further from the work itself further and further from that foundational steadying work and how risky that is the whole essay is worth reading but yeah. hearing bob talk about it for himself and how challenging it was for him you know the mental fatigue the mental health challenges. And then, of course, we sort of all have a vague sense of that, at least with Michael Phelps, because, you know, a few months after those Olympics, we suddenly see pictures of him smoking marijuana. And, he's, and that's like on every front page all over the world. And it yeah, really oops. Is, yeah, right. It's definitely oops. But what I feel so bad for him, because, I mean, yes, that wasn't a smart move. But like, I'm so slow to judge that moment, because he's like, under so much pressure. And so I think what it taught me was that we ought to try to prepare people for it better. Mm. So literally I ended up having conversations with the representative for the Olympic games for the U S about this. It's relevant now for this year, of course, but providing tools for Olympic athletes before they go to the Olympics to prepare them for the inevitable low afterwards. Right? They can lose and then that produces a certain kind of low or they can win and that produces an even bigger kind of low. <laughs> well, so let me ask you this question because, I mean, you look at our economy here in the U.S., which was absolutely roaring. Our business was had massive momentum, which was based on what we do. Our business was virtually halted because of our business yeah, model. And uh, like one of my clients, you know, at second generation furniture store, 50 employees, the shortest tenured person there is 15 years. And she just wow. kind of let 14 people go because of what's going on. So, and here's my question really, because when we go into, it's very similar to the, you know, what you're talking about, this analogy. And I love the language that you use when you talk about this, right? Is this recognition, this choice that we have, right? That we control this choice to either be overwhelmed or to stay focused on what's important. So let me ask you a question. When you're kind of making that transition from, you know, things are just rocking and rolling in your life to going into a time of either adversity or change, how do you help people really connect to what really is important so I don't get overwhelmed and then start maybe following different areas that are not going to be helpful with where I'm trying to get to? Yes, look, I'm a big believer in upper and lower bounds. Mm. In the worst times, here's your minimum standard of normal work, of the work itself, of the thing you do. What is the real competency that you are into and do that competency? In the very best times, when you could get very distracted, do that real work, right? So I'll give you some examples of this, right? I just was reading, it's called The Last Place on Earth, a huge biography or account 
of the two teams that tried to get to the South Pole. Mm. 1911, it's the turn of, you know, just the new 20th century at the time, but of course no moon race yet, space race, anything like that. So the race, the explorers of the world and the country national pride, all of this was about exploration. And the place that no one had ever been, never, not in recorded history, not since the Greeks, not through the Vikings, no one had ever set foot at the very pinnacle edge of the South Pole. Well, I'd have to debate that, though, being Norwegian. I'm sure the Vikings were there. There's just no evidence, but I'll let you continue. <laughs> we have some, quite, <laughs> some, some research on this. So as it turns out, you know, they, they did a lot of the work in the northern areas, but when it got down to where the, the ice was, they just, I mean, in some ways, what's the point in going any further? Exactly. Uh, I know. I'm just kidding. But now that I know you're just Norwegian proud there, so you will like this because he was known as the last Viking. It was Amundsen. Oh, yeah. And, Amundsen. Yeah. I read his book. Which one? Oh, the book about him. What I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. It's the last place on earth. And so Scott is the British captain who's trying to do it. As they went, now this story has been somewhat popularized by Jim Collins in Great by Choice, but when I went back to read the original thing, I found some, I wouldn't say discrepancies, because that's not quite right, but they are different than... (laughs) For example, what they did, Amundsen uh, hardly ever complains about the weather in his journals. And in good days or bad, which he had both weather days, their goal was 15 miles. 15 miles. That's what we're going to do. When there's a blizzard, we're going to do everything we can to just do 15 miles. Sometimes maybe they would end up with 13. Massive blizzard, they do 13. When they had beautiful weather, they do 15. Even when they got to the point where they're 45-ish miles from the South Pole, when they don't know where Scott is, Amundsen doesn't know where the other expedition is. Right. So they know they could force it on that one day. They could go all the way. One, it's beautiful weather. It's perfect for this. If they did one big power push, they could get the whole rest of the way in one day and increase their chance of winning this. He still insists we're going, I think they ended up 17 miles that day. The next day is at 13. And then the last day before they go, again, it's literally 15 miles. They camp 15 miles before the spot. And they win. Now, what happens? Scott's team He's complaining incessantly about the weather, even though they have like literally the same weather conditions that they're dealing with. Every day it's bad. He's complaining about the weather and they hunker down in their tents and they wait and they wait. And then as soon as it's a good day, they try to go as fast as they possibly can, as far as they can. So it exhausts them. So when the weather's bad again, they're more negative about it and it gets into this whole spiral of overextending and then underextending. And they're 34 days behind him. They do finally get exhausted, worn out. They do get to the South Pole, but they've lost. And on the way back, they're spirited and they die on the way back, all five members of the team. Well, this is an interesting contrast case. And it's good for us to be thinking about the extreme conditions. In the extremities of good or bad, good economy, bad economy, what's the solid work I can do to move this forward? Let's not change it. So for me, I'm a writer. I want to write in good times and bad times. I want to move forward with the craft itself. If you're a coach, how can you do the work itself? Maybe you have to adjust some of the income with it. Maybe you have to do some stuff for free because that's what it is. But you keep doing your craft. Yeah, you know what we've done is for me, my focus right now is not to go out and do a lot of business development. I've reached out to every single client, past client, even clients that didn't hire us for whatever reason. 
and, and not go to them and say, hey, how can I help? Because I love your analogy. Like if I'm going to the South Pole, my destination doesn't change. And if there's storm, there's good weather, there's bad weather, you know, how am I going to get there? Right? Do I have a strategy? Right? If I'm in London and I'm going to take a transatlantic boat to New York and there's a storm in the middle of the ocean, well, guess what? I'm going to have to change some of my how and my what. But I'm not going to people and just saying, how can I help? Because guess what? That's not a, That's not a good question, is it? People don't know how to answer the question and people aren't very good at maybe soliciting help. But if I put some thought into it and I go to you and I say, hey, Greg, you know, I've been looking at your business and you're a writer and you speak and you train teams and you do this thing on a global scale. And I'm guessing that this is how things are influencing you. And I have two ideas I'd like to run by you. And if you think that would be helpful, I would love to sit down and spend an hour with you and maybe we could work through some of these things or with your team. Every single person I've talked to says, that would be awesome. Can we do number two? Can we do number one? Or those don't sound quite right. Can we have a conversation and then figure out what to do? And honestly, the last- I want the specifics of what you just did because I think they're really interesting. So you will send an email. Is that what you do? I'll actually, what I've been doing is doing something really weird and picking up the phone. <laughs> so you no seriously you, I've been calling people and leaving them a voicemail I go for a, every day I go for a walk for about four miles so it takes me about an hour and a half and it's during that time that it's my goal to reach out to five people I will either leave them a voicemail or sometimes I'll get them in person and I always ask hey is this a good time because it might not be sometimes it turns into an hour conversation where I'm just adding value right there on the phone sometimes we'll schedule something but that's where I started. And then what I do is when I get back to my office, those five people that I left the voicemail for, then I send them an email. Because okay. I tell them in the voicemail, I'm going to send you an email with this subject line. Because like, I don't know about other people, but my inbox is about 300 a day. It's nutty. But wow. I don't get a lot of voicemails. I might get one or two voicemails a day, which is kind so of interesting. So you get a lot less voicemails than email. There's no doubt about that. And then what do you put in the email? What's the subject line? You know, well, let's say I was talking to you, right? And I'd say, hey, you know what? Let's say it was maybe a follow-up on this conversation. So I'd be like, hey, Greg, I'm going to send you an email. The subject line is going to be the last Viking. Look for that one. Mm. So you, so you utilize that to each person based on the conversation that you're having with them. Yep. And I only have to remember five and my brain can do that. So, yeah. you know. I, so the process is you're outlining what it is they're going through. Like you're just sort of going, hey, this is your business. This is what's interesting to you. This is it. And then, hey, here, and then you straight from there to here are a couple of ideas I have of how I could be useful to you. Yeah, like one of my clients and friends, they have a very large commercial real estate company. They have 500 tenants. It's a very large organization. They have a very small, very lean team. Looking at that though, right? I have this lean team though that has this interfacing really with this huge community. So I put some thought into what are some of the unique challenges that this team is probably facing. Also, the fact that they've always worked together as this really cohesive unit, and now they're all working out of their houses. So what mm. are a couple things that would really help this team out? And so I called my friend and said, here's a couple ideas. What were your ideas? Yeah, here's how I think I can help you and your team. Okay, but what were your ideas? The first one was, you know what? How do we create excellent communications and accountability now that we're no longer working together? I yeah. think the other thing too is how do we deal with, you know, in that industry, right? I'm guessing your rent receipts have dropped. You're probably dealing with tenants that are incredibly stressed. They don't know if their businesses are going to succeed. 
What if we had some conversations about how we deal with difficult people in difficult situations and just some of those people skills that might be a really good refresher for all of us so we don't take it personally when we have somebody really upset on the other end of the phone or somebody who's really stressed out? What, you, what I learned in your description there was that 80 to 90% a restate of your clients or former clients or potential clients problem. Yes. And 10%, I mean, it sounds pretty much to me, to be honest, like the content itself isn't changing. Like, hey, this is my same competency. I'm not going to suddenly come up with a completely different thing. But you show them, hey, I've thought about your business. I'm talking to you about what's relevant to you rather than trying to tell you what's relevant to me. There's no space in people's minds right now to absorb what someone else might want. (laughs) Correct. And if you can help them solve a problem, and you know what? This is universal, right, Greg? This isn't different than any other time. You know, if we're the people that can, you know, and you're a writer, you really understand the power of words. If you can state somebody's problem and the solution to the problem and what solving that problem would mean to them with more clarity than they can say on their own, they immediately see you as somebody with either authority or expertise. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is something you have done very well. And it's not that that is a strategy. It's because you've put so much thought and time and research into all of those areas. And you actually do have the ability to speak to some of those issues with clarity that people are looking for. I mean, what you just said, I think is so smart. And I think it is a huge distinction between someone who sort of operates as an order taker versus someone who's a trusted advisor. And mm-hmm. you want to make the, it's one of, one of my favorite stories is, um, of, you know, a lot of people, when they read essentialism, they say, well, okay, that's okay if you're the CEO. You know, if you're Steve Jobs, you want to focus on X and say no to 100 other things, a 1,000 other things, as he said, well, that's all right for him, but what about the rest of us? And so I loved coming across a story of someone who did say no to Steve Jobs and lived to tell the tale. And it was after Steve had been kicked out of Apple and he starts next. And he's looking for a logoist who can come and create him a great logo because he's lost apples now. He doesn't have that. And he finds one of the top logoists in the country and they have a meeting. And in the meeting, Steve's trying to, I mean, you can just imagine how he communicates and telling people what he wants. And, and he's persuasive and he's got the money and he's the job. And it explains how it's all going to be. And this, the client says, uh, well, not the client, the, uh, the contractor says, no. Um, he says, uh, I won't do it the way you're describing it. He says, I will solve your problem for you completely. And I will bring you that solution. And then he actually said, and, and you will pay me. And it wasn't, you know, cheap. And we were talking back quite a ways now, and it was still $100,000 he was charging. And Steve talks about that experience in hindsight. And he said, he brought me a jewel of a logo, which I love this idea here. He says he was the ultimate professional because he thought through what would create value to me more deeply than I had. But what you've done in this conversation, John, is you've helped to clarify what it is somebody needs to do, what a coach listening to this, watching this needs to do in order to demonstrate that value. But sometimes when you hear the concept, oh, hey, show you create value. Yeah, everyone gets that, but how? And they think, okay, I've got to come up with better and better 
generic solutions, the answer to it all. No, that the low-hanging fruit is to show that you understand, is to just write down, articulate what they will likely be going through. How long do you have to think about each client in order to be clear about that? Well, let me share something. One of my mentors, Donna St. Louis, she calls this the bat signal. So think about it. You know, the old Batman movies, right? And you light up the bat signal and it hits the cloud, right? So now imagine, I try to think about this, my client sitting there at their desk. And it doesn't matter what industry, software, services, doesn't matter. They're sitting at their desk and they wish they could hit the button, hit the signal turns on and Greg McEwen shows up. What would make them hit the button right now? What are one or two issues they're sitting there struggling with where they just wish somebody could come in with a little bit of coaching or a tool or software or some consulting or some advice or whatever you happen to be? You know, if you're going to the South Pole, right? Somebody shows up with the best cold weather gear ever. Everybody's different. So what is that bat signal? I Honestly, that is kind of what I use. I sit there and start kind of brainstorming. And actually, once you kind of start thinking from that perspective, it actually comes pretty easy to be able yeah. to kind of put yourself, it's all about putting yourself in that other person's shoes, trying to understand their world versus what do I have and how do I force it in to their world? Well, that's exactly the distinction, isn't it? It's not an academically difficult thought process. It's not like, oh, analytically, I can't work out what they might be dealing with. Oh, I couldn't write an essay. If you were assigned to write an essay in high school about what that person is dealing with, you could figure it out. I'm sure even on a post-it note exercise, like if you were to, I came across this term recently, uh, April, and Eric Perry, to my knowledge, came up with it, and it's called a microburst. That's what they call Mm -hmm. it. 10 minutes of focused effort on something. I love this. If I set a timer and do a microburst, on a particular client, and I'm just gonna write down in 10 minutes what I think all of their biggest challenges are right now, what they're dealing with, what they want, what the problems are, what's become more difficult recently. And at 10 minutes, I'm done. Oh yeah, you are gonna be able to write the best email. You're gonna be able to call them and have the best conversation with them. Because the whole intro is that you've already thought through that. You begin with all of that. And what a breath of fresh air it is whenever I've worked with people who begin this way. It's really rare, actually. Well, you know, another thing you can do with that awareness, which is really powerful for a client. Let's say you come to that awareness and go, hey, these bat signals, this microburst, none of their biggest problems are in my area of where I could add value. But what if I call you up, Greg, and say, I was really thinking about you and your situation. I'd really like to introduce you to my friend that does this. I just brought a friend of mine in that specializes in working with nonprofits and profits and doing something called scenario planning to really help nonprofits move through a time like this. Because yep. I felt that's not my area of expertise, right? And he works with some very large nonprofits. So I was actually thinking about one of my friends and clients and I said, well, I'd love to help, but you know what? This other guy can help. He can do gooder. <laughs> yes. Right? So I called him on. I said, hey, you know what? Here's an idea for you. Could I introduce you to somebody? I'll be on the call if you guys want to engage with him, but I think this would be the outcomes. And he immediately got back to me and goes, that sounds like exactly like what we need. Because this is a time really for us to build trust 
to build relationships. And I don't, it's not unique to this time. I think this time has highlighted it with other people around us because here's what's going to happen. Whenever we go through a time of adversity, whether it's now or sometime in the future, and we've been through them in the past, people are always going to look back, Greg, and you know this, right? Six months from now and say, how did I experience that person? What, how'd they make me feel? What'd they do with me? Like I said, either things are going to get better or they're going to go backwards. And the choices we make, what we focus on in the present is what's going to determine that when people think about uh, six, 12 months from now. And there's two parts to what you just said, right? Two advantages. One is the six months from now, right? Which is a, that's the normalized story. That's the, hey, six months from now, things will be approximately what they were before, you know, and oh yes, in the rough time, how was John? How, was, how did he show up? But there's a second value, Fred, which is what if six months from now, and a year from now and two years from now, it is not at all like it was before. Which, I hate to put this out there, but I actually really sort of rather suspect myself is what is coming. So in such a scenario, it's not just, hey, they were good in the rough time. It's this innovation will happen because the relationship is taking place because you're actually in communication with people where they are today, not where they were in the good old times six months ago or three months ago now. So, you know, it helps to accelerate innovation now, which is, boy, that's what I think we need to be doing. Hunker down at home, be safe by all means, but don't hunker down mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. It's time to reinvent, reimagine, create, and not just in some general way, but in a way that has the power of relevancy right now and in the future, whatever this new world is going to look like. Yeah, it is going to be different, but I think in many ways, it's going to be much more similar than we also realize too. Go on. Um, I mean, there, there's... Do you mean just because humans are humans and that doesn't change? Or you mean you think... Well, no, I think it gets into the innovation you're talking about. Let's just say that, okay, so I do a lot of public speaking as you do, right? And I do a lot of training for large groups. Yeah. And so six months from now, are we going to have 50, 100, 3,000 people in an auditorium like we did six months ago? No. No. But guess what? Do I have to go figure out how to hold an event with 500 people and social distance properly as somebody who's coming in, no, guess what? If I call, I've already done this. I've called some venues. They're already thinking about it. They're innovating. They're saying, what is the solution? And I think that translates into so many different industries. The people that we work with, our vendors, our suppliers, people that we collaborate, our business partners, if we actually kind of open up and I think be a little bit less guarded, a lot of the solutions to some of the things that we think are really sticky all the pieces are probably out there. And if we can maybe put ourselves in the center to help coordinate some of the flow and decision-making, what I'm seeing even with some of my clients right now that are tackling some pretty thorny issues is these problems and innovations to be able to move forward in a better way are unfolding. And it wasn't as stressful as they imagined as they started into the process. That makes sense. It does make sense. One of my favorite quotes is by a Christian leader of a church 
Gordon B. Hinckley, and he says, uh, he says, what his favorite things is, I say it to myself all the time, things will work out. Put your faith in the Lord and move forward. Things, I say it to myself every morning, things will work out. That to me, that optimism, which is such a deliberate leadership choice, is really essential in all circumstances, but it's like so relevant right now. It's, of course, we're not going back, right? The, to me, the status quo has been attacked and it's going to carry on being attacked. It's like we've spliced into a new reality, a new universe, and this is the one we're in now. But this one's going to work out. This one's going to be full of opportunity. I feel it myself. And even from the earliest days of this shift, you know, when it was just so unthinkable, everything that's happening, I actually found myself inside just with this uh, poetical term, right? Invincible summer I found in the cold winter. I found this invincible summer, something like that. And I was surprised to feel it. And I've felt it ever since. And you see, this is a bit insensitive to say it because I do know that this has impact, impacted people in such a variety of ways. Some it's just, you know, absolutely wrecked, wrecked people's lives, uh, taken lives. So I don't mean to be insensitive to that. But I, I'm just saying that out of the gratitude that I have felt mm. and tried to feel and express has grown the most productive, creative period certainly of the last 10 years, maybe of my life. And I'm not kidding about that. It has been so rich. And I see this possibility. I see this opportunity to, to say, well, it's, it's almost like, you know, when Steve Jobs gave his commencement address at Stanford and he talked about when he had a near-death moment, he thought he was going to, the doctor said, oh, yes, you know, you're going to have... You, just a few months to live. And he thought for a while, in the end, it, it was okay at that time. But he said, after that experience, he said, I just realized I was already naked. Man, when you think you're gonna die and then you don't, you get a window back. You're like, well, what? I, let's live without fear. Let's live without worrying about this. Let's go and do what we have this precious little time left to do. And I think there's an, a feeling like that in me around this time. Yeah, you know, I. I would say from personal experience that transition is liberating and freeing, but also very challenging. I mean, coming out of my accident, being able to work just a few hours a week, I had had no income for almost three years. My health was wrecked. Wow. My network was completely dormant. Uh, <laughs> yes. but, right? And that, coming that out of that. Awful. That feels awful when things are dormant. I don't oh, know yeah. if it's real or not, but it feels real. It feels isolated, lonely. And you know what? And there were some people that were who I thought were my best friends. And when I was damaged and could no longer refer business to them or do things uh -huh. that were of value to them, they just poof. And some of the people that surprised me who were like there through thick and thin, who have today become some of my absolute closest friends. But in that, realizing that, you know, seven years ago, I should have died. And you realize at that time, right, you play the movie and you realize, and I did, right? I'm laying there. God was at the accident and told me he was going to heal me. And then it was a couple days later, the brain surgeon comes in and they have to take off my skull and fix everything. And what I'm hearing is when he's talking to my wife is the chances of me making it are very low. And the chances of me being the person she remembered, yes. not very good. Yes. And so when he left, he asked my wife, you know, do I have a will and a living will? 
Wow. And so she, he wanted it FedExed up to the hospital for me to sign because we'd just redone oh. it. So anyway, I started playing the movie and I realized what did my life meant up to this moment? And everybody at the front of the church, they all say nice things, you know, and then I figure, okay, what would they say before they go to the back of the church and they're looking for the free roast beef sandwiches and potato salad? Yep. And what would they say about me two years later or three years later? Yep. You know, hey, John, Greg, they, you know, what a good guy. Yeah, he was a great speaker. Uh, what a tragedy. Uh, anyway, man, how's business? Or to be like, you know what? I spent a weekend with Greg. That guy changed my life. You know, we had John come in and I worked with John for a year. It's the reason why my family and my marriage are still together and my company's thriving. And we got through some really hard times. But what I realized through that, Greg, was I had the power that I didn't realize I had to completely rewrite the script of my life to focus like what you talk about. I think that's why what your message resonated is really what is essential to do in the present. Because one of the things that I did coming out of this, I actually wrote the eulogies that I would like my wife, each of my boys, my closest friends to stay, and I've never shared it with them. Some, I've shared it with two people who are my closest, what I call wingmen, because I want to live a life so that when that day does come, that is what those people say because of who I was and what I did as I lived. And I got to tell you, for me, that was so freeing and so exciting, but I also had to rebuild from the complete ashes. And there's people right now that probably feel the same way, like, you know, everything's cratered. And I guess the only thing I would tell people as an encouragement that one thing and my faith was a huge part of it, right, was the hope, right? The first thing God said to me at the accident was all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. And kind of where I was at, I didn't even know that was from Romans, by the way. But what that said to me was that when I was in the middle of it, sometimes I did not believe that tomorrow would be better than today. Yeah. But I could believe that a month from now, could be better than today. And six months from now, definitely could be better than today. And it was honestly that hope that allowed me to just keep taking those small steps forward, pacing myself, like you talked about, only doing 15 miles a day or 10 miles or 12 miles, but not doing too much, not doing too little. But what is that in the present? Because when I focus too far in the future, that's when I start to feel anxiety, when there's so much ambiguity. But if I know that destination and I figure out what's the most important thing for me to do today, the one thing, even if I don't feel like doing it, and I string enough of those together, all of a sudden you look back and go, I've come a long way. Now I got a long way to go, but look how far we've come. I completely agree with this. And I, just a few years ago, we, um, we moved to a new home. It's a lovely neighborhood. It's like it was built in the 1950s and the whole world went by and nobody told anyone here. It's white picket fences. It's, it's got these horse uh, trails, more horse trails than roads. I mean, this is the description. And for us with our, my wife, Anna, and our four children, it was like we're, this is like a little heaven on earth. And it, it was just beautiful. The children, was, one of my daughters was especially taken with this. She's outside, shoeless the whole time, chasing lizards, riding horses, reading, voluminous in her language, always writing a journal every night, everything, it's Eve. And then she turned 14 and she just slowed down a bit. She said, talked a little less to us, took longer to do her chores. And we didn't, we thought that pretty age appropriate behavior, probably not too much. Take her to a physical therapist who 
says, you know what, she failed a test, she shouldn't fail, I think you should see a neurologist. And as soon as they said it, we were like, well, you don't have to be told twice, first of all, immediately, next day we were there with a neurologist. And secondly, we suddenly thought, well, with that lens in mind, maybe some of these other behaviors that we've noticed, more than just kind of teen awkwardness, maybe they're, you know, something deeper. And we realized that already her development had actually been significantly affected, like her, her capabilities. And every day for like the next two months, it was a free falling capability. So her loss was immense. Mm. You know, like it was just like taking someone and making them turn, go slow motion. It would take her like two minutes to write her own name. That's going to be hard as a mom and dad. Oh, it's, it, this is really sort of agony, right? Because we're meeting with, or at least it could be. I mean, you're sort of on the edge of possible agony at any moment. We're meeting with these urologists and they did like literally one of them, I remember just shrugging his shoulders. It's like, I don't know, we've done all these tests. Everything's negative. That's kind of good news, but I don't know what to tell you. I don't know where we'd go. And we're just immediately met with the edge of human knowledge. And that's also the stuff that suffering can be made of. And I mean, there's so many lessons that from this time and this experience. Yeah, the, the not knowing what to do, the not knowing what the source is or the root cause of a problem, right? Is that what you're referring to? Yes. I mean, just all of it, just the high stakes, it's highly important, but it's immensely ambiguous. The problem is getting significantly worse every lost day. So there's, there's all sorts of opportunity for just desperation. You could fall into real depression. There's all sorts of uh, tempting cycles that you could get into. And we, we just realized there was two clear paths we could go on. You know, like one is the one I just have described that I think sort of is inevitably downward spiral. And the other was, well, was faith. Mm-hmm. particularly gratitude in this moment, in it. Not just, hey, please help her to be better, but we're thankful this moment, to have this moment together. We're thankful that we can pray. We're thankful for music, and we get around the piano and sing. Mm-hmm. We're thankful for nature, and we go out and walk. We're thankful for humor. We're thankful that there are neurologists, even though they don't know what to do. And out of that, and I don't use this word lightly, there was joy and deep joy and resilient joy. And day after day of it, even amidst all this heartbreaking uncertainty, and out of that joy and positivity, good things happened. And I didn't have words for this, but there's research about why this is the case uh, from Barbara Fredrickson, that positive emotion doesn't, it is causative. Mm. Mm-hmm. not just a correlation of, hey, good things are happening, therefore you feel good. No, when there's positive emotion, it produces new results. And so the gratitude that we were doing, really we felt so prompted to do it, guided to do that, was actually immediately having this positive effect in our family, a positive effect in our sense of faith, our sense of future, of how things would be, and a conviction, a sense within us that this will work out. You know, we don't know how, we don't exactly know where, but we really are sure it will. Other people started praying and it became legion. We weren't even asking anyone to do it, but it like someone had said, oh, can I let people know? And it grew and it grew. And suddenly there's this legion of people and they started praying. They said, what should we pray for? And we had this one idea that we pray for is that one doctor will have one insight. 
and we talk about an essentialist idea actually we wanted one person to have one diamond insight that would help us make an inch of progress because there was not one single inch of progress being made on the outside and so all out of a sudden this urologist specializing in uh, movement disorders in pediatrics which is the most absurd specialty had a nine-month waiting list he only met with people once a month anyway he suddenly has an opening two three weeks out and so everyone that was caring about this, praying about this, was focused on that specific idea, insight from that doctor on that day. And we went to, um, went to that appointment. It was hours late for us. And even then, at least my wife, not so much me, but my wife had this, was like, no, I'm grateful he's late. You know, I mean, think about that. Why? And as soon as she's grateful, suddenly we can both see, well, of course it's good. If he's late, it means that he's focused on someone else. When he comes to us, he'll be focused on us. And you mm. can see things, gratitude, you can see things you couldn't otherwise see. When he comes, he's completely different. In a sense, the most amazing essentialist, because he's able to, his whole team is focused on getting to the bottom of this situation. There's no just checkbox, okay, well, you're here, yes, sorry, I don't know what to do next patient. He's like, okay, let's discover this. And he does something I've never seen any doctor do in my entire life under any circumstance. He said, okay, here's the medicine, go take this pill right now, come back, after you've eaten lunch, we'll see if there's any effect. Like he didn't know what's the cause. He's like, we're going to treat it to learn. So that will be our mechanism for learning. She came back, we didn't notice difference, but he could notice something. And so immediately was hospitalized and immediately it was the beginning of the journey back. To- well, let me ask you a question. If you, do you and Anna feel if you had not had that focus from the place of joy or gratitude, that this opportunity with the doctor would have revealed itself? Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I think that's, I, I think I do believe that. I mean, it's, it's hard always to really get clear causation in any complex narrative to know what caused what. But yes, I believe that if we had taken the path of complaint, if we'd taken the path that that takes you to, it's not that I think... See, oh, this reminds would, me of what you said before, the difference between Amundsen and Scott. Yes, I think there is a parallel here. It is a complete, right? Like you could have shown up through this and been miserable because of the storms of health. And if it hadn't been a good result, right, it would have been a really horrible time. Or you live day by day in gratitude and joy with your daughter celebrating her life and that our families together... And I do believe there's like this spiritual magnetism and you do get what you focus on. And when you are focusing on a place from joy and gratitude, I've seen it in my own life in my own recovery because I was actually in an interesting place to compare myself to other people who had severe traumatic brain injuries as we went through this together and saw people that focused as I really worked hard to do from a place of joy or gratitude. I was never happy. I think happy is different than joy. Sure. Uh, that might be in our conversation. But people that didn't focus on that were more like the Scott party. And I actually saw where they got to and it scared me. It was a dark right. place. And that was as motivating for me to honestly stay positive because I did have a, a reference in the moment that was, you know, live and in color. Well, exactly what you just said, because when I try to express this experience, it's a little hard to find the words for some parts of it because when I say well, it could have been agonizing or there could have been suffering, well, you do feel 
some agony and you do feel some suffering. But in that moment, that's the moment of choice. Do you give way to that till it consumes you or do you turn to God? I mean, that's it, right? Do you have the faith to say, look, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I have felt you say that to me, that it's going to be okay. There's a beautiful painting people can look it up. It's um, in the midst of what I think my most agonizing moment. I mean, I did weep through this experience. I mean, I'm not trying to imply that there wasn't pain, but the pain was consumed in this joyful sense of let's move forward. It's going to work out. But one of the times I was just so sad about it, I was praying about it, and this phrase came back to me, and there's this, it's, it's the name of a beautiful painting, and the phrase was, um, she will find what is lost. Mm. And as I say, see the painting, but for me what it meant was here are these capabilities that have been lost in her. I mean, she's the most dynamic, funny, talkative person, and the idea that she will find what is lost is like really meaningful that you want her back all back and she was pleasant through this whole time sometimes when people go through this type of experience it can change their personality into into very aggressive types or all sorts of transformations but all that personality was uh, a lot of that was gone and here's the i'll tell you what i learned from it all yeah it's one of the main lessons was that if you focus on what you lack Mm. You lose what you have. Oh, that's, it, I, that's, I'm writing that one down. And the second part of it is there too, which is if you focus on what you have, you gain what you lack. Okay. I just wrote that down. That's powerful. And he, you know what? I'm going to, you know, to kind of break the fourth window here. Yeah. That's what it's called, right? To the audience. As you've been listening to this, here's something I'd just like to share with you. As you've heard Greg and I kind of recount some of our things. You know, each day, right, you have a choice. And sometimes making that choice, some days it's harder than others. What I have found for myself personally also is my wife, my friends, my pastor, people around me, even some of those days to actually help me to make that choice, to share with them how I do want to go through this. Listening to other people's stories, testimonies. I got to tell you, that was so powerful to be when you're going through adversity or things like that, to be in community. And I would just encourage people to not try to do that alone. And the other word I would share with people is, you know, that choice every day, right? It's a standard of excellence. And excellence is a standard, but grace is the word, because guess what? If you have a day that you slip, your mindset's horrible, you just, you don't show up well, because guess what? It happens. That does not mean that you can't do it or don't see that choice or if you make the wrong choice as something that represents maybe your identity or who you are. It was just a choice and it's separate. And you have to separate the two because you do have to see yourself as the person that has the ability to move through this and actually move through it well. And having people around me, I have found was the key to day after day after day when sometimes I felt like I personally did not have the energy to just be hopeful and but just having people around me and then guess what i look back and go they carried me that was awesome god was there he carried me and so i just wanted to share that well it's a beautiful reminder at this time when yes sure those people probably don't have their daughter going through 
what I just described. Most people aren't going through what you have described specifically, but I think a lot of people know exactly what we're talking about in other, you know, other challenges, either the health challenges, which one kind of impact, but then there's all these secondary and tertiary effects or the children that are at home now sad because they miss their friends or they miss some other aspect of life. Spouses who are now burned out or on the edge of burnout because they're now trying to do work, plus they're trying to homeschool when they've never done that before and all the ambiguity and chaos. I mean, yes, there's all of this stuff going on. And in these moments, what I think is most essential, what is the priority, of course, is to put God at the center, right? That's the priority because then everything else can slip out of our lives. In fact, I've got the best quote for you. Okay. Listen to this. It's by Ezra Taft Benson, who is a Secretary of Agriculture and uh, maybe under Eisenhower, I suppose, and also a church leader. He said, when we put God first, all other things fall into their proper place or drop out of our lives. Our love of the Lord will govern the claims for our affection, the demands on our time, the interests we pursue, and the order of our priorities. Yeah, I love that first phrase. We'll either fall into their proper place or drop out of our lives. So I do think that when you get that priority in place, it puts other things in perspective. From there, what I think happens and can happen is as we are grateful, it's an instant change of effect. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the cheapest, fastest, most instant thing. And it doesn't matter how discouraged you are, you can do it. And it doesn't matter how grumpy you are if you do it. We'll do it sometimes with our children now. We certainly taught it to them. And if they'll say, they'll be, whatever, complain about something. And I'll say, oh, that's fine. Now you have to say something thankful. That's fine. You, we don't mind about the complaint. Now you've got to say something thankful. You've got to get them. And I've had it where my children will say, you know, I've had my son say, well, you know, I'm thankful for seven pieces of sand. You know, and then he'll complain again. I'll be like, we'll do it again. I'm grateful for three pieces of sand. You know, <laughs> and, sort of, and it doesn't matter. And that's how powerful gratitude is, is it doesn't matter. That's right. You don't make them wrong for saying sand, but you know what? Okay, so my goodness, this is, we're going to have to turn this into a two-parter. So everybody out there listening, gregmcewen.com, G-R-E-G-M-C-K-E-O-W-N. The book is Essentialism. Is there any other place that they can learn about you, connect with you, Greg? You know, the one thing I wanted to mention, it just occurred to me, is that for the first time I have created a class in relationship with uh, Skillshare. I think they called it Simple Productivity. And it's the first time I've actually created like a public offering of like specific skills of things that you can do. Normally that's just in keynotes and events. And so people can go on and get that. Of course, they can sign up for the newsletter uh, just uh, just starting a one-minute Wednesday so that you can read in one minute something that can really help you in this moment. You know, what's... Well, hey, that's brilliant. You know what? I just started because my book is coming out in a few months. So I'm starting the mock one minute. And so that's going to be going out weekly starting next week. So we'll have to compare notes. I'll share yours. And we're, we're and also, when you launch your podcast, so by the time you guys hear this or just keep, you know, an eye out for it, the Essentialism Podcast, I'm sure it's going to rock. Do this as a favor for Greg. When you get there, this is how iTunes track things. 
when you see it and it's live, hit subscribe. That's what iTunes is looking at for all their algorithms. Ratings and reviews are awesome. That helps other people find it. But what iTunes is looking for is when people actually hit the subscribe button. So everybody out there, tune in, hit subscribe, share that with people because I know it's going to rock. Well, no, it's been fascinating because I felt very um, out of my not out of my element, that's not right. I feel really in my element, but so new to it that I have found the learning curve, you know, the last two or three weeks, I've interviewed so many people and just been learning so fast under these circumstances instead of having producers as we plan to do this in this launch. It's all been different, but it's been fascinating. I've done these long form interviews that will get edited down so that we could get past the normal answers and into some of these are the deeper principles and its spiritual elements. So there's been conversations with people like David Allen uh, from uh, you know, Getting Things Done, talking about a poem that he wrote about his experience with God, mm. almost a, a near-death experience while he was still alive. I mean, it was like, that's fascinating. We've got Drew Scott from um, Property Brothers, he and his wife, having a totally transformative moment where they, they discover together something that's been holding them back because of their different view of what business is. And so there's all the spiritual elements of what the platform, this huge platform that the Property Brothers have developed could become over the next five to 10 years. And that happened because we spent so long talking. You won't have to listen as long, but, but you know, or Ariana Huffington that uh, just interviewed her and hearing her take on what this new environment is that we're in can really be a revelatory experience for us, not just a continuing experience. Anyway, it's been really great to have these kinds of depth of conversation with people that normally are pretty skilled in answering the questions, you know, ABC, well, we've gone way past that. And I've really enjoyed the exercise so far. So I think- Well, I need to share this with you. You've tapped into something for you personally that is absolutely part of your core because just your- energy, your body language, your tone, dude, just went up like, you know, from a 10 to an 11. So I can't wait because when you are that engaged and passionate about what you do, just incredible stuff is going to flow from that. So I can't wait till it comes out and I get to hear some of this. So, well, I, I, that's good feedback for me. And I do think, you know, a couple of weeks ago I was like, well, I'm not sure but it's been interview after interview. They've been very, very interesting moments. So I'm looking forward to sharing that directly with people for the first time. All right. Well, that's all. Well, everybody, here's my final call to action to launch everybody is listen, tap into the book, read essentialism. I I think the principles that are in there are just so universal. They're going to help you right now. They're going to help you in six months. They're going to help you in two years, regardless of how the landscape shifts or, or doesn't shift. But as you can see, there's a lot that I've built my company, my approach to coaching based on the work that Greg has done. So I just want to encourage everybody to just, if you haven't read it, read it. That's a call to action. Thank you so much. 